We apologise for the crackling that can be heard in certain parts of the following recording. This was due to a fault on the machine that was used to record the original tape and unfortunately is beyond repair. However, we do hope that this will not spoil your enjoyment of this message by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew in chapter 16 and verse 26. The 26th verse in the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Surely there is no more important question that we can ever face than that particular question. If we had no other reason for saying that, this one reason would be sufficient, that the person who asked the question is the most important person that has ever been in this world. You can assess the value of questions in many ways. You can assess them in terms of the subjects concerning which they put themselves. And that in and of itself is a very useful and important classification. And in this case, you see at once that if that is your criterion or your standard, you have to agree that there is no more important question than this question. But there is another way of assessing the value and the importance of a question, and it is, as I say, to consider the person who puts the question. The greater the men, the greater the person asking the question, the greater significance does that question of necessity have for us. There are people who ask foolish questions, irrelevant questions, unimportant questions, but we say that we pay no attention to them that anything that may be said by such people is not worthy of attention. They ask foolish questions. And because they're foolish people, we pay no attention to their questions. But here is a question that is asked by someone of whom we can say that he is the most important person that has ever entered into or lived in this world. Now, it's very interesting to notice, isn't it? Uh, when exactly our Lord put this question, he put it, remember, immediately after that very important and vital incident in connection with his life and ministry, which took place at Caesarea Philippi, when he turned uh, to his disciples and put that important question, asking, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Simon Peter made his immortal statement when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And our Lord accepts the answer. 
and commends Peter, you remember, saying, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. Very well, then, I say, here is a question put to us by one who accepts the designation that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in this context, where he has just declared himself, he puts this momentous question. What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now then, let us try to look at this great question. By putting this question, our Lord tells us quite a number of things. And we can subdivide those things, if you like, into general statements and more particular statements. Here are some of the general statements which he makes. The first is he makes the pronouncement that every man has a soul. What uh, shall it, uh, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I say, therefore, that the deduction is that every one of us has a soul. He's making that statement by asking his question. And what is the soul? Well, the soul is that which differentiates a man from an animal. A soul is that which is within us, every one of us who is a human being, which links us to God and makes us capable of fellowship with God. The soul is that part of men which reaches out not to the seen and the visible that is round and about him, but rather to the unseen, the invisible, the eternal, and especially, I say, to God. The soul is something immaterial. You can dissect a human body and you can't find it. No, but the soul is that which has been placed in men by God and which separates him essentially from all the animals. In many respects, man is similar to the animals. In many respects, in his physical constitution, he is remarkably similar to the animal. But when you come to this question of the soul, here is something that the animal lacks and belongs only to men. It is this strange power and capacity that men have of realizing something of his own individuality and personality. It is this within him which renders him capable of fellowship and communion with God. It is this which therefore opens him and exposes him to the blessings that God gives in this peculiar manner to the human race. Now, that is what is meant by the soul. And therefore, what our Lord is saying here is this, that every one of us possesses this soul. God made men in his own image. This is a great mystery, but it includes what I'm talking about. He put this peculiar something into men, which he put into nobody else. And thus man was made in the image and the likeness of God. He became a living soul. 
with all the possibility of the enjoyment of God and the knowledge of God and the peculiar blessings that God gives alone to man. Very well, there is our first statement. Every one of us possesses a soul. But then our Lord goes on to make a second statement, which is this. This soul which we all have may be lost, or it may be in a saved condition. Clearly, his question carries that implication, doesn't it? He says, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Very well then, the soul is something that we can lose. A man's soul may be lost, or a man's soul may not be lost. Here is his second proposition. We've all been given the gift of the soul. Yes, but the question is, what is the condition of our soul? Is it in a saved condition? Is it in a lost condition? And clearly what determines that is its awareness of God and its relationship to God. The living soul, the saved soul, is a soul that is functioning as God meant it to do. And a soul which doesn't function in that way is a soul that is lost. So our Lord emphasizes this momentous and tremendous truth that a man's soul may be lost or it may be in a saved condition. And then he goes on to say this, that we shall all be judged finally in terms of the condition of our soul. Did you notice how he went on to say that? He said, the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and, he, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. He, the Speaker, the Son of Man, the Christ, the Son of the living God, is going to come back, he says, and is going to be surrounded by his holy angels, and he is going to judge every man. And the subject of the judgment will be the soul. This very thing about which he's speaking. The question confronting every one of us then will be, is your soul lost, or is your soul as it was meant to be? What is the condition of your soul? He says that. And then he says another thing. And it follows, of course, in its own logical sequence from all that I've been saying. Our eternal destiny will depend upon the state and the condition of our soul when we stand before him in the judgment. Now that is something that our Lord was constantly saying. There is a division, a final division of the saved and the lost. And those who are saved go on to eternal and everlasting glory. And those who have lost the soul go on into eternal and everlasting misery. Well, now then, here you see are some of the general statements which our Lord makes and implies by this momentous question and by the surrounding context. Here is, as it were, how he introduces the subject to us. It's no use saying or asking us the question, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Unless we've got some notion and idea as to what is meant by the soul. And that is what is meant by it. Now every one of us in this congregation has got a soul. 
And the state of the soul of every one of us is either that it's saved or else it's lost. You and I, every one of us, shall have to stand in the judgment on this very question as to the condition, the state of our soul. And our eternal destiny without end will be decided by this one question of the state or the condition of our soul. Very well, there is the, our Lord's introduction, if you like, uh, to the question that he puts. But fortunately for us, he didn't leave it at that. And he says things here in this context, in this paragraph, which will help to enlighten us, and which will help us to know exactly what the condition of our soul is. And this, I say again, is surely the most momentous question that can ever face a human being. Very well, then, let us come on to his particular statements. Surely the first thing we should desire to know in the light of what I've just been saying is this. How may I know the condition of my soul? How may I know whether my soul is lost or is not? You see the issues that depend upon it. What shall it profit a man though he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Here is this whole question of my eternal destiny, my future without end. It all depends upon whether my soul is lost or not. Therefore I say the first thing I want to know is this. What are the conditions or the indications, if you like, of the fact that a man's soul is lost? How may I know whether my soul is lost or whether it's saved? Well, fortunately, the answer is given quite plainly here. Now, the first thing that our Lord tells us about this matter is this. That the ultimate way to discover whether our soul is lost or not is to discover how we think. What is our thinking? What is our thought life like? Now let me show you where I find that here. The first thing that indicates whether a man's soul is lost or not is the very type of thinking in which he indulges. Because according to the Bible, there are two main ways in which men may think. And in fact, two ways in which men do think. There is what you may call a natural way of thinking, the way of thinking which is characteristic of the world and everybody who belongs to the world, but there is on the other hand another type of thinking which can be called a spiritual way of thinking, which is altogether different. Now, our Lord, you notice, puts this quite plainly in a statement that he made to Peter. Here is our Lord, he has asked his question, whom do men say that I am? And then to the disciples, whom do ye say that I am? And Peter brings out his great answer. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes, but in a few moments, listen. Our Lord began to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter, this Peter of all people, took him and began to rebuke him, saying, 
Be it far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. And then I read this. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. What does that mean? Well, what our Lord was virtually saying to Peter was this, Peter, in spite of the fact that you made that wonderful statement just now, your whole thinking is wrong, man. You see, when our Lord went on to tell the disciples that he was going to die upon the cross and lay down his life a sacrifice for many, Peter said, this shan't happen to you. This is wrong. This is impossible. He upbraided him. He remonstrated with him. And our Lord said, get behind me, Satan. You don't mind. You're not thinking the things that belong to God. You're thinking the things that belong to man. And you're a hindrance to me. Now there is an indication of what I mean, but let me give you another illustration. You remember what our Lord said to Simon Peter after he'd made his great confession? This is how, he, this is how I read. He turned to him and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. What does this mean? Well, it's just another way of saying the same thing again. Our Lord looked at Peter and said, Peter, you have just made a tremendous statement. You have said that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you're absolutely right. But you know, Peter, do you know what made you say that? Do you know what enabled you to say it? Do you know how you ever became capable of making such a statement? Well, let me tell you, it isn't flesh and blood. It isn't natural reason. It isn't human understanding. It isn't because you're just a man and because you've got a wonderful brain and a human insight. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. But my Father, this is revelation. This is spiritual. This is given. This is from above. It isn't you. It's my Father that has revealed it unto you. Now, this is a very important question, therefore. You see, there are two ways of thinking. We can think after flesh and blood. Or we can think in this spiritual manner. Now, the point I'm making, the principle I am enunciating is this. That the first test we must all apply to ourselves, if we would know for sure whether our souls are lost or not, is this. What is our type of thinking? How are we thinking about life and how are we thinking about ourselves? We are in this congregation because we are people who think. We are disturbed about the state of the world. We are concerned about ourselves in various ways and manners. And we are thinking. Yes, but the question I'm asking is this. What type of thinking is your thinking? Is it flesh and blood thinking? Is it the type of thinking that God produces? Those who are familiar with their New Testaments will know that this is a distinction and a division that is often brought out very clearly in the New Testament. Let me give you the classical statement of it, which you will find in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians and in the second chapter. 
We are confronted, says the Apostle there, to those clever, brilliant uh, Corinthians who are so fond of philosophy and argumentation and reason. We are confronted, says the Apostle, by this position. That when the Son of God was in this world, the princes of this world did not know him. For had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He says the very princes, the greatest men of the world, when the Son of God was here, they didn't know him. They didn't recognize him. And they condemned him to death. They said, away with him, crucify him. The princes, the princes of Israel, the religious leaders, their kings, and likewise the Romans, and likewise the Greeks, the great men, the great minds, the great brains. But why did they do that? And here is the answer, you see. The natural men, the natural mind, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto it. Neither can they, because these things are spiritually discerned. No, no, they couldn't understand why. Well, they were thinking with flesh and blood. They applied their ordinary natural human reason. And they looked at Jesus of Nazareth and they said, this man is making great claims, but after all, he's only one who's come out of Galilee. He's only a carpenter. The thing is monstrous. He's never been trained. Who is this artisan who stands and says, I say unto you, away with this fellow. Now that is flesh and blood thinking, you see. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, said our Lord to Peter. But my Father, which is in heaven, and the Apostle Paul re-echoes the same thing when he says that though the princes of this world didn't know him, yet God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, the Spirit which searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. And so I ask you this first, this preliminary question. What type of thinking do you indulge in? As you face the world today and its problems and yourself and your own personal problems, how are you thinking? Are you thinking with flesh and blood? Are you thinking with your own unaided reason? Are you just dependent upon men? Or have you come to this revelation? Does this enter in? Does this form the basis of all your thought and all your reasoning processes? It's one or the other. And what I am asserting is this, that if your thinking is confined to flesh and blood, your soul is lost. That is the thing our Lord rebukes. And it's in that context he says to Peter, listen, be careful, he says, and all the rest of the disciples. All that, he says, leads to nothing. That's human, earthly, flesh and blood thinking, and it leads to destruction. Your thinking must become spiritual. Very well, there it is in general, but I can divide it up and give it to you more in detail. But let nobody run away from that. We all know perfectly well at this moment which type of thinking is our thinking. And that indeed is enough, but let me help you still further by taking this second question. What is the content of our thinking? What do we think about? 
Because this again will indicate very clearly whether our soul is lost or whether it is functioning as it is meant to function. Now then, what do I find here under the heading of the content? Well, the first thing I notice is this. That the thinking of a man whose soul is lost is governed by certain things, and here they are. The first is himself. The man whose soul is lost is a man whose thinking, the content of whose thinking, is governed by himself and himself alone. Here is where I find it. Our Lord in this very context utters this word. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. And then comes our text, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Therefore I deduce this. The content of the man's thinking whose soul is lost is thinking that is governed and controlled by self and by self-interest and by life in this world. That's the thing our Lord is talking about. He says, now, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself. Or he puts it in plainer terms, whosoever will save his life, that means his life in this world, his earthly life, his human life, whosoever will save his life in this world shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life in this world, for my sake, shall find it. Now that tells us all about it, doesn't it? The characteristic of the man whose soul is lost is that he is only concerned about his life in this world. He is concerned about himself and his well-being and his interest in this world. He is out, as our Lord puts it, to save his life in this world. After all, he says, this is the world that matters. I'm not interested in some pie in the sky. I'm not interested in what may happen after I've gone out of this world. I'm here now. And what am I going to get now? That's the thing. Their life in this world. And he wants to save it. And he spends all his time thinking about it. He's the center of his little universe. And everything for himself. What can I do to be happy? What can I to get this or that? Always himself. Self. No, no, says Christ, you've got to deny yourself if you really want to be my disciple. You've got to lose that self if you really want to find your true self and your soul. What is it that governs your thinking, my dear friend? Do you always start with yourself and do you end with yourself? Are you the beginning and the end of your little universe? Does all your thinking revolve round about you, your knowledge, your understanding, your ability, and what you have, and what you're going to have, and what you'd like to have? Is your thinking circumscribed always by self? Do you ever get outside that circle? Do you ever begin to think about God and about eternity? Or is it entirely life in this world, and you, and the time you're going to have in this world? Now I say that this, our last, 
is a certain and a sure sign that a man's soul is lost. That it's entirely selfish and self-centered and interested only in self. But then there's another thing that always goes with it. It's most interesting. The second thing that always governs the thought of such a person is the opinions of other people of the same outlook. This is how our Lord puts it. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What's he mean by taking up the cross? Well, there is no phrase that is so frequently misunderstood as that phrase of taking up the cross. Many people just think that it means this, that we've got to bear with troubles and sorrows and perplexities and problems in this world. It means nothing of the sort. Taking up the cross means this. It is something that you do as a deliberate act. It's involved in self-denial and in following Christ. What's it mean? It means this. That you deliberately in denying yourself and following Christ take up this cross of being unconcerned about the opinions of other people. It means that you put yourself on a cross because the moment you deny yourself and follow Christ other people will be involved. And they will criticize you and they'll be hurt and offended with you and they'll say all manner of things against you and persecute you. Now that is what is meant by taking up the cross. That you deliberately says, yes, let them do what they like. I'm going on. I deny myself. I follow Christ. But the man whose soul is lost, you see, doesn't do that. No, no. He is afraid of the opinion of others. He is governed and controlled by it. If somebody expresses an adverse criticism, he is made unhappy. He is depressed. All along he wants, you see, because his life is centered on himself, he wants the good opinion of others. And he's interested in what they say, and he's concerned about what they say. And indeed his life is controlled very largely by what they say. They say he's going to become a fool. He's become soft. He's got religious men. And they're troubled. Oh, how can I face them? And so his life is governed not only by his own opinions, which are entirely of flesh and blood, but by the opinions of others, whose opinions are also flesh and blood. And he's afraid of them. And he's entirely determined and controlled by them. Those are the characteristics of the thinking of a soul that is lost. He hasn't denied himself. He hasn't taken up the cross. He's living the typical life of the men of the world. More revolving around himself. Interested in others who are like him. And concerned about what they think and say. And reacting to it. Those are indications of a lost soul. But then we see this still more clearly when we consider what this kind of person fails to consider. What is it that he fails to consider? Let me just note them to you. The first thing he fails to consider is the worth of his own soul. 
Indeed, he doesn't think about his soul at all. He thinks about his own person, his own appearance, what other people think of him. He thinks of his own ability, his own brains, his own position in his profession, his money, his house, his friends, his children, all these things. Yes, but he never thinks about his soul. He never sits down and says, But oh, there is that within me which was given to me by God. This unseen immaterial part of me, this thing that links me to God, he never thinks about it. Never gives it a thought at all. He's not aware of its presence, its significance, and its importance in his life. He has no concern about his soul. He's never faced the question of his own soul and its eternal destiny. And it is because of that, of course, he doesn't think about God. Thou savorest not of the things that be of God, said our Lord to Peter, but those that be of men. Come, my dear friends, these are very practical questions. Your eternal destiny depends upon these. How much time do you give to thinking about your soul? How much time do you give to thinking about God? How frequently does God enter into your mind and into your thoughts? Are you as concerned about God and your relationship to him as you are about other people and your relationship to them? You who can be made miserable and wretched by the adverse opinion of another person, have you ever thought what God's opinion of you is? Have you ever been troubled by that? You kept awake at night, you couldn't sleep because you were in a turmoil, because other people had said something unkind about you and because they hadn't liked you. Have you ever thought what God thinks of you and whether God likes you? The man whose soul is lost doesn't think about his soul. Neither does he think about God and his relationship to him, and in the same way he is unconcerned about this truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, If any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. Not the way of the world, not the thing to do, not what everybody else is doing, but let him follow me. He who stands there before us, the Christ, the Son of the living God, follow me. This man doesn't think about him. He never enters into his calculation. It's always other people. It's always self. And never the Christ, the Son of the living God. These things are plain and simple and obvious. And yet have we applied them to ourselves. These are the indications of a lost soul. Worldly flesh and blood thinking that reveals itself in this way, in these wrong concerns and in the absence of the true concern. But let me go on to a second principle. Our Lord not only enlightens us here as to the indications of a lost soul, he makes a positive statement which is that there is no greater loss than the loss of the soul. What shall a man be profited 
if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. There is no greater loss than the loss of the soul. Indeed, he puts it like this. That to gain the whole world is no compensation for the loss of the soul. And he puts no limit upon it. What he says, shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He can't give the whole world in exchange for it. That is the measure of the loss of the soul. But can this be proved? Why should this be the case? Well, I think I can answer in this way. I can prove to you that the soul is of greater value than the whole world with all its wealth. And I do it in this way. That the wealth of the whole world does not and cannot satisfy the soul. It doesn't matter if you gain the whole world of wealth and knowledge and influence and power and popularity and anything else you may like to throw in. It will profit you nothing. It will not satisfy you unless you possess your soul and have it in a healthy and in a saved condition. Shall I give you a simple illustration to show what I mean? This matter of the soul is very similar to the matter of health. Is there any greater tragedy in the world than to see an enormously wealthy man who suffers from some crippling illness or disease? You've seen many of them. I've seen many of them. I remember seeing a man once who was a multimillionaire. Yes, but he was a sufferer from chronic asthma. And there he was. His wealth was in a sense almost unlimited, but he couldn't breathe. And what was the value to him of all this great wealth when he hadn't got his health to enjoy it? Now there is a parallel, you see, an illustration. He had all this wealth and he could buy this, that and the other, but it was of no value to him. He'd lost his health. A man's health is more precious than the value of the whole world. For the world and its wealth cannot purchase this help. Or take the question of a man's character. If some terribly serious charge is brought against a man's character and people tend to believe it, you go and talk to that man. And if he's a very wealthy man, he'll say to you, Look here, all this is of no value to me. As long as my character is lost or is in question. And if such a man is in such a position, this is how he argues. The man does it about his health as the man does it about his character. You show me that man with that chronic disease, and this is what you'll hear him say. He'll say, tell me, do you know of a doctor anywhere in the universe that can help me? I don't care what it'll cost me. I'll travel the whole world. I'll spend my last farthing. I'll give all. I'll mortgage everything. If only he can promise to cure me and give me health. Of course. The wealth of the world is of no value to the man because he can't enjoy it. He's lacking in health. And likewise the man whose character is being traduced by somebody. He says, I want to know the greatest barrister in the world, the mightiest counsel. What's the value of my possessions to me if I've lost my character? 
I'll mortgage everything in order to defend it quite right. And you know it's exactly the same with the soul. I care not what you are, nor what you possess, nor what you intend to be. But I tell you this, that if your soul is lost at all you have and all you may have and all you are and all you hope to be, will never give you final satisfaction. This was once put in an immortal phrase by the mighty Saint Augustine, who having tried so much of this other thing, came at last to the inevitable conclusion, Thou, he says, to God hast made us for thyself. And our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. You know, my friend, the soul that God has put within you is so constituted and is as great as this that the whole world cannot compensate for its loss. You can take the world and its wealth, but I say there'll be a running sore in your soul. There'll be a misery. There'll be something gnawing at you. You won't be able to rest in peace. There'll be a dissatisfaction. There'll be this restlessness. The world and all that it has to give is not sufficient to compensate for the loss of the soul. But I can prove it in another way. The world and all its wealth is only temporary. Its money, its knowledge, its honors, its reputations, everything that the world can give us, and it can give us much, ends with this life and with this world. It is what our Lord's talking about. Whosoever shall save his life in this world shall lose it. He's bound to, because all that he's gained here, he's got to leave behind. You can't take your wealth through the river of death. You can't take your reputation. You can't take your learning. It's of no value there. It's not an exchange that is recognized beyond the veil. It's not currency in the spiritual unseen realm. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The soul goes on. But all that the world can give us at its best and highest does not go on. And we cannot take it with us. And therefore I argue that to lose the soul is to lose everything. Because there I shall find myself at the end, having lost my soul and having lost all that the world has given me. I shall be empty-handed. I shall have nothing at all. And then, do you see, beyond that, here's the terrible aspect of this loss. If my soul is lost when I die, I shall go on into eternity with nothing with me, none of the things on which I've lived in this life, none of the things I've hoarded up in trying to save my life in this world, none of that and nothing else. I shall be outside the life of God my soul, because it's lost, will be dead to God and his blessings and his glories and all that he has to give to the souls that are reconciled to him. I shall have nothing, and that is hell, to have nothing to all eternity and to realize what a fool I've been. Our Lord has put it all, hasn't he, in his picture of Dives and Lazarus, the rich men who fared sumptuously, 
But everything that he wanted, he was saving his life in this world. Ed had been very successful in doing it, but there he is beyond the veil, beyond death and eternity, and he's got nothing, and he's in a torment, and he's in a flame. He says, go and warn my brethren. It's too late. That's the loss of the soul. Eternal separation from God. Deadness to all that is of value and everything that is noble throughout eternity. But perhaps my strongest argument of all to show the worth of the soul and to show that there is no greater loss than the loss of the soul is if I put it like this. Did you know, my dear friend, that to lose everything else, even the world itself, does not matter at all if your soul is right, if your soul is saved. I've shown you negatively that again the whole world is lost and of no value if you lose your soul. I put it round the other way. If your soul is right and is saved, well then it doesn't matter if you lose everything else. And this is experience which confirms the teaching of the scripture. The hour is coming, said the Son of God himself, when all men shall leave me and forsake me, and I will be left alone, and yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Ah, says the Apostle Paul, later on, having given himself to this Savior and trusting to him, for me to live is Christ, and to die, what is it? What is death? What you have you of death? Ah, the men of the world says that death is the final robber. It's the thing that comes and robs us of everything. It robs us of loved ones. It robs us of possessions. It robs us of knowledge. It robs us of life. Life, death, what is it? The final robber. No, no, says Paul. To me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh, yes, says a man writing centuries later. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows. Like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Man may trouble and distress me, says another, twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me, heaven shall give me sweeter rest. Yes, says another, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shalt be. And listen to the Son of God capping it all when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, why, they shall inherit the earth. Here is a man who has left all for Christ. Here is a man who hasn't been saving his life in this world, but has lost it for Christ's sake. He seems to have given up everything. But listen, he's going to inherit the earth itself. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Oh, it doesn't matter what you may lose. It doesn't matter what the world may take from you. You may lose your friends. Your family may ostracize you. Everything may go against you. If your soul is saved, if your soul is right with God, it will not matter at all. Having this, we eventually shall have all. I say, therefore, that our Lord instructs us here that there is no loss in life or in the whole world which is comparable to the loss of the soul. My dear friend, I ask my question as I close. What is the condition of your soul? Is your soul lost? Apply my tests again. How are you thinking? What are you thinking about? What are the terms of your thought? Is your soul lost? If it is, I say, it is the most tragic loss conceivable. The whole world is not of such value as the value of your soul. Is your soul lost? If it is, you'll be glad to hear me asking my last question or making my last statement. Is there any hope for a lost soul? Thank God there is. What is it? Well, there is only one hope for a soul that is lost. It is this. That the Lord Jesus Christ does realize the value of the soul. Look again, I say, at the one who asked this momentous question. There he stands, Jesus of Nazareth, apparently only a man, and yet an unusual man, because everybody is looking at him and talking about him. Some say that he is John the Baptist, some that he is Elias, some that he is Jeremiah, or at any rate he must be one of the prophets. But he isn't. Who is he? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's here in this world. And what's he doing here? What's brought him here? Do you know the answer? He's here for one reason only. And that is the value that he attaches to the soul. And I'll tell you what he thinks of the soul. He values your soul and mine to this extent. That though he was in the form of God, he counted it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. What blind fools we are! What's the Son of God doing in this world? Why is Jesus of Nazareth the Son of God here at all? Why has he come from heaven? Why has he left the courts of eternity? The answer is because he knows the eternal value of the soul. He came from heaven to earth. The meaning of the incarnation 
is the measure of the value that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit attach to the soul of man. He came from heaven to earth because of the priceless value, the preciousness of your soul and mine. But he didn't stop at that. What is this thing that he's telling these disciples? From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. He's going to die. He's come to die. He says, For this hour came I into this world. But why did he die? And there's only one answer. He died because he knows the value of the soul. He gave his life a ransom. For what? For your soul. The price he paid that your soul might be saved was his life, his blood, himself. He gave himself for us, for our soul. That's the value that he attaches to it. The soul is not only of greater value than all the world and its wealth. This is its value. But the Son of the Eternal God came out of eternity into time and humbled himself and took on him the form of a man and the form of a servant and went even unto the cross, yea, the death of the cross. That your soul and mine might be redeemed and rescued. Might be purchased from perdition and loss. And might be restored unto a soul. That is the message for the lost soul. There is this hope. It's the only hope. If you have not realized the value of your soul, Christ has and has died for that he might restore it to you and give it back to you in a way and in a manner that you can stand in the presence of God on the day of judgment without any fear. And what does he ask of you? He simply asks you to believe what he has told you about yourself and about your soul. If any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself. Let him stop thinking after flesh and blood. Let him face this and say, this is God speaking. I will believe this. I cannot, what happens to me? This is God's truth. I accept it. I believe it. He gives himself. He denies himself. He gives himself to Christ. He cares not what anybody else may say. He takes up the cross. And he goes after Christ. He simply accepts this thinking, this teaching, this doctrine, this truth. He gives himself entirely to it and at all costs and whatever it may lead to in the future, it doesn't matter. He clings to this Christ and follows him all the way. And though, as I said, all men may leave him and forsake him, 
and he may find himself bereft of everything, he rejoices in it. And looking at men and women who still belong to the world, he says to them what the Apostle Paul said to King Agrippa and his wife, and to the Roman governor and his wife, I would to God that all ye were at this moment such as I am. He knows both how to be abased and how to abound. He is content, he is happy, because his soul is right with God, and he sees beyond time the glory that is awaiting him, and to the joys of everlasting bliss. What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What of your soul? Is it lost? If it is, fly to him who can restore it to you. Redeem, cleanse, deliver, sit to stand in the presence 